Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Jeff Pulver is the chairman and founder of Pulver.com. As co-founder of Vonage, he is regarded as one of the fathers of the voiceover IP industry. He's an entrepreneur, a seed investor, and an online social networking master. I am pleased to have him with me on this podcast. Pleasure to be here. What is the real-time web, and why is it such an important development? So the real-time web is something which we've been experiencing for many years. It's just in the past um, 12 months or so, it sort of came to fruition. And, you know, I, I, I've spent some time working on Wall Street. I can tell you that, you know, the real-time Internet um, means a lot of things to many people. We're not driving, uh, we're not driving cars or uh, flying planes through it right now. But it's really more of a, a, of a conceptual idea that we're all experiencing information almost the same. It's, it's real enough time, not necessarily truly real time. But what, what happened this year is, is that it, um, the world did become flat. And at 500 years post-Columbus, we're now living in what I would call the dawn of the, of the millennial age. And in the, the dawn of the millennial age, uh, in the first moments, the first nanoseconds uh, before anything's happening, I can tell you that the world is flat, that um, most people don't speak any language, but there are you know, a few million people who are uh, uttering uh, a language um, uh, known as Twitter. Um, and and some, some are Facebooking. But what we're starting to do is to share presence, starting to share information about what's happening uh, around us. And that you know, for the first um, 13 or so years of the commercial Internet, we... Um, you know, we, we, we were in archival mode mostly. I mean, we didn't have search engines back in uh, 1993, but we had Gopher and Oasis, and the search was there, but it was very truly primitive. It really wasn't until Google launched that search truly was search. Uh, no offense to Yahoo, um, but that was more categorization of information. And then, and we lived in, a, in an archival mode for a long time, but then, you know, even though Twitter launched in, in 2006, Sometime this year, people discovered their voices. People discovered in mass that uh, if one person says something, another person says something, and more people speak, all of a sudden their voice matters again for the first time in our history in a long time. And that individuals can affect change. And if you could stand up, you actually can change the world, and you, and you can be affected by this. And in this real-time web, uh, what's happening is that if you have broadband Internet access, whether you're sitting in a um, sitting down in a home in Los Angeles, whether you're in a cafe in Tel Aviv, whether you're in a, a hotel room in London, or you're in a, you're out on the beach in, a, in Sydney, Australia, information's coming to you around the same time. And what you do with that information is up to you. But until until this moment in time, the, the gatekeepers were involved in figuring out who got that information. You had situations where heads of companies, heads of state, knew what was happening, but individual people like you and I, no, we really didn't have access to this type of information. You know, we all know that attention has become a very scarce commodity. So I'd be curious to know, do you think the real-time web is ultimately going to get more of our attention than the archival web? The last time there was a major earthquake on, on California, there was a 40-minute gap between people tweeted between the time the person tweeted it and the time it showed up on news.google.com. And that's arbitrage. And, and if you're working in financial markets, if you have a five-second edge on world events, you're way ahead of the game. And that, and that, that billions of dollars are at risk here. 
Um, and, and if you could build these trading boxes to actually identify trends that are, that are hiding in plain sight, that's amazing. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyak, Analyst and Partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit OnTheRecordPodcast.com for the promo code before you register. Uh, Jeff, um, Tim Street, who is the CEO of Ape Digital and a well-known viral video blogger, writer, producer, director, speaker, uh, submitted a comment for you uh, uh, via via Twitter to me. And I, I, I'm thrilled he did because I actually had read um, about um, you in uh, in Trust Agents, which is the book by Chris Brogan and Julian Smith. Um, about how, your use of, um, of of databases to manage personal contacts. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about CRM and how you manage uh, your database of personal contacts. I'm a firm believer in database marketing. I can tell you that at the end of the day, if you're trying to market to a community, if you don't have access to a database of who's in that community, you're kind of out of luck. Uh, back, in the, back when Lotus 123 mattered to people, I was fairly adept at it. And um, I've been storing data in spreadsheets ever since. You know, database marketing is something which can be done wrongly. It will affect you negatively. Done right, and it's priceless. And I and I think, yeah, I think that if you understand your community who you're talking to, and if you speak to them, not at them, but with them, and engage in conversations, um, things are different. You know, on Twitter, you know, I don't. Well, I might make statements on Twitter each morning. I say hello, and um, I spend the rest of my morning responding to people responding to. Me and I love it because it gives me a chance to connect with some people who I never see and others who are part of my water cooler experience. And it's uh, from someone who grew up uh, turning on his ham radio each day and saying CQ, CQ, this is WA2BOT calling CQ and standing by and hoping that somebody would respond to me to being able to go on a platform like Twitter and just say good morning and have a, sometimes a flood of people come back. Uh, it's serendipitous and, and, and it's really a way that I, I connect and I do try to respond to everyone I can because I think there's a, a real value in connecting. And, and the way, I, the way I, I, I act on Twitter is, is actually very, effect, very connected to how I do my direct marketing because I believe in the individual message and that it, when people respond to me, I try to get back to everyone as often as I can. Sometimes so, I can't. But So, Jeff, there are, there are so many um, contact management products out there that are that are available in the cloud there's high rise from 37 signals there's batch book from batch Blue software you're telling me that basically the way you do it is just excel on a local hard drive um yeah i'm old school i, I and don't ask me what about my twitter tools could be embarrassing for me to tell, tell you that i manage uh, everything inside of a browser so in terms of um in terms of this this doing it in excel um, if if you were going to give advice to someone else who wanted to maintain a personal database in Excel, um, what fields should they be hanging on to? What information is is the critical information? I, I look for first name, last name, and email address. That's it. 
To what extent uh, do you think geodata? I mean, I would imagine you know you're going around the world, you're producing these con- these conferences. I would imagine location based information could really improve the usefulness of that of that data. No. I used to think so, but it turns out that what's stronger than that is word of mouth buzz, right? I spend zero money in marketing and advertising conferences, but what is the influence of some people? I mean, if I, um, I do have Twitter names uh, in some of my fields, but I, and, and from the registration databases, I do have about 26 you know, fields across because the registration systems capture much more data than I ever really care to, uh, to manage or share. But I, what I discovered is that it's the people that matter first and that, you know, chances are that if you uh, are in my database, you may or may not actually pay money to attend a conference, but you will influence the attendance of somebody. And I want to make sure that at least if you're going to say something good or bad about my event, that you have all the information possible about it. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to know geographic information. I don't need to know exactly the cell, the cell site they used to call me the last time we communicated or what, where, what the closest Wi-Fi uh, connection point was for them. And you know, country does matter, but I, I whether it's just just fortunate or whatnot, but I, I I've discovered that the voice the voice of the people matter more than anything else, and that a lot of the time, I mean, I, I tell you this one stat that uh, when I was started building my database from Janu- from uh, let's say March until June when the com- first conference happened, ninety percent of the people who registered for my conference were not in my database, that they all came from Twitter and they came from word of mouth from friends and friends of friends, and so. My database is is growing, and 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 this this crazy trend is there that most of the people who ultimately attend the events are not people in my database. Jeff, um, you know we actually met at Nate Niles at one of your breakfasts in Los Angeles. Um, I remember but, that. I remember that. That was back in January. But uh, I was reading, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this book Trust Agents by Chris Brogan and Julian Smith. And there's a line in here I want to read for, for you. It, it's referencing you, and it says the lesson. Pulver told Chris at the time was that one's personal database was an asset as valuable as gold if nurtured and maintained. So the question is, how do you nurture a personal database? So um, maybe I wasn't clear uh, with my, what I'm doing with my flat files. I uh, f- First of all, collecting names for the purpose of collecting without using them is useless. It's a waste of time for everybody. Um, if you're going to uh, you know create relationships, you know, the, the list feature on Twitter is ingenious, but it's something which we all should have been doing for years and, in fact, always have, at least in our minds, use, uh, done, use lists. Uh, when I talk about you know, nurturing our databases, that's really how we contact and connect with people. I mean, if certain people need stru- – I'm a fairly unstructured person, if you can't tell. Um, but, but for people who need structure, uh, the, the idea of having these lists and keeping track of your contacts and keeping track of how often you've touched someone – whether it's on Twitter or on Facebook or on, on email, on, um, on SMS. I mean, that's the other thing is that I, I've evolved how I communicate with people. It's like if I understand that someone's communication device is a BlackBerry, I make sure my subject of my emails are less than 15 characters. If I know that I'm texting somebody or Facebooking somebody, there are certain things I'm going to have. And so I have like four or five. I always look for a default way to communicate with people, and I have to understand that. And so some people who will never respond to an email – will respond immediately to a tweet that I send out to them. Some people who ignore me, my emails, like a direct message, and they respond to that. Uh, there, there are people who are my, only my Facebook friends. They, for some reason, only respond to Facebook messages. And other people deal with um, it, traditional ways. Uh, no, 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 no letter mail, but, but email. 
Um, well, so are for, you are you tracking that information in the database? I mean, do you have a field in there where you know for every individual personal contact you note what their preferred well, channel is? I, I had when I was at when I was doing poll when I you know what's this now two thousand nine back in two thousand and eight two thousand seven I was def, I was doing that for my own marketing yes. Uh, Right now, I have different lists for different means of, of, of channeling stuff. I, uh, you know, I'm uh, I have separate. Uh, I'm sort of disorganized, organized in a very disorganized kind of way. But yeah, the field, the, the one thing that most people forget about or haven't gotten to the aha about is that that the, our default channel of communicating is different, and that as communication technologies are evolving, we the people are changing how we're connecting with others also. And that if you're looking to 2010 and trying to figure out the most effective way to, to launch a direct marketing campaign, you need to understand how, what that channel of communication is, and you have to look at what that is. And it's not what you like; it's what they like. And and so yes, uh, to to be effective in this in this, if you will, personal relationship contact management, you need to understand what how those people prefer, how your friends or the people you're trying to reach prefer to be communicated with. And have access to those platforms. You know, it's you know, it, it just if you decide to do do everything inside of Facebook, but people aren't listening to, you, are not reading their Facebook inbox, you're wasting your time and their time, and you're creating just spam effectively as far as they're concerned. If you're if you're sending messages to people on Twitter, but they haven't looked at their Twitter account in four months, you're wasting your time and you're not getting through. So to understand, this is why the personal relationships matter because you need to know these people and to the extent where you met them, how you connect with them uh business cards alone are useless for many of this i mean even if you have someone's twitter name you have no idea you know are they on twitter you know in the mornings the afternoons at nights or are they just not they're just there in uh, name only but the prospect so, uh, of tracking all that information is overwhelming and particularly I, when I, you I, tell me that you're going to do it in excel i'm just i'm baffled I, not only do we do it in excel i do it in my head um and that when i depending upon who i'm trying to reach now i do this on an individual basis you know if i'm looking if i'm if I have 140 speakers for a conference I'm trying to reach out to, I need to understand. Um, it's a new form of digital stalking at some level, but you know, if, if I haven't met the person, I do look for a referral. If I don't have a referral, I just go out and directly contact them. And I look. For, I, what I'll do is on Twitter, if they're a Twitter person, I'll look to see the hours of activity by looking at their tweet stream and going to their Twitter pages and just looking to see the increments of time each day they could predictably be online, whether or not they're actually on Twitter or not. And give it a shot. I have about an eighty percent success rate that way. Um, but this requires a lot of personal planning. If I was building a new CRM tool for two thousand and eleven, um, I, I would have fields such as cell phone number, um, you know, business cell phone number. I would have email. I would have what find out if it's a corporate email. Have the corporate email account, but also have a field for personal. Chances are it's going to be on Gmail. If not, it's on Yahoo or Hotmail. But you know, more and more people have, in the states anyway have a Gmail have a backup Gmail account. I've discovered most of my friends who have jobs who are their job security is uncertain to have a Gmail account. Um, and then I you look at you know uh, you know I, I will make note of their Facebook name and I'll make note of their Twitter name and uh, I'll make a note. I'll have a field which is you know preference uh, in, in terms of contacting them because again it, it's not how I want to do business with them. It's what they are preferred. You know, if you use smoke signals and that's all I can use to communicate with you, then I have to learn smoke signals. If you only communicate in Morse code, then I have to do Morse code. Over the last 30 years, our default channels of communication have changed. There are a lot of people for the longest time did not respond well to voicemail because it required a change in our culture to accept voicemail as a way to leave someone a message. 
there was a, for many generations, people received and sent messages by sending letters to each other. Phone messages that were personally given to somebody were acceptable. And we had telegrams at that time too, and the telegraph worked for certain things. But over time, the last 10 years, I don't think there's been a bigger change to the way that we create, deliver, and process messages than now. And when you have so many choices, you know, you wonder how, why are certain people more effective than others? And it really comes down to that personal touch, the personal databases. And so, you know, for what I'm doing in Excel in terms of managing my lists, that's because there's no tool in the world that, I, that I've seen that match up at all to what my expectations are and, and can change as dynamically as my mind makes things up. So I, I'm back to primitives. I, if, I, if, if, if I was living in pencil and paper, I'd be all paper and pencil. But um, I, I happen to at least capture names. of inf- You capture the information digitally and manage it archa- archaically, but it, it works for me. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that On The Record Online continuously delivers useful information that increases your professional value to your employer or your clients. And you also know the podcast is and always has been 100% free, delivered as a service to the community. And now, for the first time, I'm asking you for something in return. Your opinion. I want to know what you think about this podcast. Log on to www.ontherecordpodcast.com and take the listener survey. Over the past five years, I've given you 200 hours of compelling programming. And now I'm asking you to please give me five minutes of your time in return. Go to www.ontherecordpodcast.com and take the listener survey today. Jeff, um, one of my favorite podcasts is called Marketing Over Coffee, and it's produced by Christopher Penn and John Wall. And Christopher Penn once um, gave me a tip on how to synchronize databases amongst Twitter and Facebook and other social networking services. And uh, basically what he said is, you know, you could just set up a dummy Gmail account. You can move your list up to the address book of that Gmail account. And then when you log in to your Facebook or your Twitter, you could just synchronize with those email addresses and then, you know, start following or friending people who might have registered um, at Facebook or Twitter with those email addresses. Are you doing anything like that? I mean, do you, synchron- do you, you synchronize um, your Facebook and your Twitter account with your Excel spreadsheet? I have over time. I mean, back in 1998, I had a startup called emailsyntax.com. And at that time, I was looking at how corporations, I came up with a syntax of 15 different ways that corporations were mix- mixing and matching names to corporate domains and, and had a service that, so that if you're trying to reach the CEO of AT&T, I'll give you the 15 most likely uh, ways that his email would be formed and no offer to send you an email on your behalf to that person. Um, and so I, I, a lot of that I just keep in my head. But I, I have not actively tried to synchronize Twitter and email um, too often because uh, usually I, when I'm focused on getting to a person, I can get to that person uh, uh, I do, do so much of this now in my head that it's you know it's it's just difficult to write it out as a process or as a tool. And I could but see how if, if if you're going after one person, I could see that. But like when you're promoting your conference, you know, you want to somehow reach out to your database. And I know, I mean, email is becoming more and more risky, right? Often people get emails, and even if they've signed up or 
giving you their email address, you know, they, they get upset. They feel that, so, oh my God, I'm getting spam. Or maybe if you don't go frequently enough, they forget about you. Or if you go too frequently, they unsubscribe. So, I mean, what changes over the years? Because, I mean, you've been doing that. You've been producing conferences for a while here. Is email still the, the, the channel of choice for promoting conferences? Uh, well, again, let's, we have to differentiate between our channel of choice and, and the channel of choice for the person we're trying to go after. Uh, it's certainly easier for me to send out email than it is anyone else. And years, for years, I had uh, a technical edge on using email because I just understood it. And I built some tools that, that automated the way I thought and the, automated the way I worked. And it just was terrific for me. As times progressed, I mean, don't forget back then I had people doing fax marketing too. So you had, you had uh, direct mail with uh, postage. You had fax mail, faxing people, which was sort of controversial. You had the introduction of email marketing. Um, you had telemarketing on the telephone, uh, um, and uh, and now it's the, that sort of progressed over to – and people get really annoyed when they get SMS when it's unsolicited, trust me. You know, I start out by identifying the core, the core anchors for whatever I'm trying to promote, and I go after the speakers or I go after my guests, and, and that's my core focus. And then in terms of uh, creating awareness and stuff uh, – uh, I, I might use a platform like uh, uh, even LinkedIn and look for and, and canvas names because I what what I'll do is um, you know if, if LinkedIn is letting me uh, export names from my relationships that I may not be actively involved with but people reached out to me for years to exchange information I'll download my LinkedIn lists and use that as a way to market to because they're there um, uh, Plaxio uh, was you know, has a limit of a thousand or so but I'll download those names too because they're there. I would then go on Gmail and download my active contacts, or at least everyone who's supposedly my my my, my friends on Gmail, and download those people. And that would be my the seed list I would use to um, promote something to. And I then will then uh, go into a platform, whether it's Facebook or, or Twitter, and try to solicit uh, people who are interested in my conferences by by actually putting out a promotional link on those platforms. And uh, on Facebook, I might create a Facebook group or an event. And see who shows up, and then use those use the event groups and do and do Facebook marketing to people who've expressed an interest specifically in the event that I just announced. It helps if you have five thousand friends on Facebook because at least you have some awareness building on Twitter. Um, I can't tell you the value really of having a, a large list. I've never um, oh, oh, it's only in the last couple of months that I've gotten to like almost you know, two hundred eighty-seven thousand followers. I am I was quite quite quite. It took me two and a half years to get to thirty-four thousand. So I've been trying to figure this out ever since. But it's been a you know an interesting ride. But I, I start with my core lists, and then I, after I after I do the lists, I, I then supplement it with information from the platforms. But relative to where I am trying to promote and what I am trying to do, and then I ultimately suck it all into Excel and uh, hope it works out okay. So let me ask you something, because um, I know data portability is a hot issue. It's been, you know, it's something people discuss. Is data portability the reason why you keep that data in your own Excel spreadsheet? Is that the reason? Uh, that is a primary reason. Uh, look, I believe that in the future, social networks will evolve to social networks of one, where it's sort of like with the, with the way email works today, where you decide who you send your emails to, you decide who's in your directory. You decide whether or not you want to let people contact you through whitelisting or blacklisting. I believe that if you look at the future evolution of where social networks are going to end up, that we each and every one of us will have our own personal social network 
uh, that defines us as people, that for some of us, we're going to have, like telcos have peering relationships. We're going to have peering relationships between ourselves and our and the other people. Some of them will be friends. Some of them will be relatives. Some of them will be strangers. Some of them will be customers. Some of them are going to be uh, people in our lives uh, from high school or from or other or from summer camp, or it's going to be from vacations or something. And each of these categories is going to have associated with the ability to share information in between so that based on your attributes and based on who you are in those relationships, things like videos and photographs may or may not be shared. Information relevant for us uh, for a conversation may or may not be shared. Uh, status updates will become more personal so that the strangers in my group will not get this, the personal uh, status updates I may share with my close friends or relatives. Um, and so when I look at all of this, I believe that that happened because of data portability because I don't want to necessarily go onto Facebook one day and find out I'm locked out because I pissed somebody off with the terms of service or that Twitter decides I no longer can have 300,000 followers because I did something wrong or that LinkedIn um, decides to, to close me out the door. So I know you're on a tight schedule, so I, I want to um – but I want to just get in a couple more questions before we wrap this up. And before I move away from the real-time web and ask you a couple of VoIP questions, I want to recommend a speaker for the 140 character for the 140 conference. Um, his name is Shell Israel, and he wrote a book called Twitterville that I just read. And Jeff, in my opinion, it is the social networking bible. It is a brilliant book. It's got interesting case studies. It's well-written. I'm so excited about this book. I devoured it. I underlined every page. I dog-eared every page. So my recommendation for 140 characters is uh, Shell Israel. He's at Shell Israel. And I'll have a link to his um, Twitter ID in the show notes. But uh, before we move on, I want to ask a question that came to me from John Lincoln. He's the marketing communications manager at Freedom Voice. They're a telecom company based in Encinas, uh, California. And he says, ask Jeff about the latest VoIP phones with video conference abilities and what is on the horizon. Well, what's on the on the horizon from uh, the video? Look, the video phone's been been on the horizon since 1962, and arguably since 30, 1938. In terms of a practical reality, I think it's again we have to deal with consumer habits and our needs or and perceived needs to communicate and share information with video. Which you know, everyone I think has an opinion about this. I am not of the opinion that uh, video will change our lives the way that uh, the, the people market. To us, to us, want to, but the thing that will change our lives is high definition voice. That when people discover a higher quality to experience things, because since, since 1937, an engineer at AT and T decided that, that we cannot have experience more than 300 to 3300 hertz on a phone call. That means if you have friends who have heavy accents, you will find you don't understand them. When you're talking to kids on the phone, their their voices are being cut off by these filters. And in fact, if you've ever had to spell your name phonetically on the phone, it's because of this limitation. So for me, the biggest thing on the horizon is the, is the implementation and support of a high-definition voice experience that will uh, change the way we experience uh, communications. Uh, in 2009, there was Orange, um, which, was from, which was, uh, has been a leader in this change. They, they did a rollout in France. They did a rollout in Moldavia. They are, they are changing the way people in certain countries and certain cities are experiencing communications. 
Well, seeing as how you are, you know, one of the fathers of voiceover IP, um, you know, a lot of us who use Skype are frustrated with the interference and the noise uh, that we get. And actually, we've had some noise and interference, you know, during this podcast when you've been saying some pretty interesting stuff. And I've been like, you know, clenching my teeth thinking, oh, my God, it's just terrible. We're going to miss it. Is there any tips you can give us? for how to maximize your DSL connection for Skype? I mean, is there anything we can do, or is it all just happening in the cloud? Unfortunately, we, you and I, can't do much. Uh, if you or I were a service provider, we could prioritize the packets from you and I to each other. Uh, that could happen, and chances are, like, I'm running on a cable modem. I'm going through a cable modem, and the, and the, and the, and the, the service provider here has their own voice service, Chances are that if um, that, that their voice packets are being prioritized over these Skype packets, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're being uh, marginalized on purpose. Uh, you know, if things if these days I'm not surprised any of this. I used to be uh, just it's it's okay to be paranoid because the truth is here. So as the thing is about Skype though is that it's that the the voice technology is terrific, but since these Codecs have come out, the, the, the core technology that enables Skype to be Skype, uh, better algorithms have come out that under lossy packet conditions and actually mask that, that loss even better than what Skype does. So, uh, um, it's funny, Jeff, you know, your, your voice is cutting out right is now. There are solutions now. I, you know, I lo- we lost your answer because uh, of Skype interference, and I'm wondering if uh, you know it could be that uh, you know my eyes may not your be eyes. that we. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We were cutting each other off because the thing is, I was not hearing your answer because of Skype interference. So I was wondering yeah, if maybe you. your paranoia is, is legit, and, and my ISP and your ISP are monitoring this conversation and and you know limiting the transmission of our packets so that we don't reveal to the world what they're doing. Could be very, very well. Could be. Sorry about that. Um, okay, final wow. question, and uh, it comes off of this idea of net neutrality. Um, you may have seen it. There was an article, uh, a guest column in yesterday's New York Times by a guy by the name of Adam Raff, who runs a company called Foundum, and he was arguing that Google's dom- dominance is stifling innovation and that the FCC needs to look beyond net neutrality to this idea of search neutrality, which I, I never actually considered. Let me read you an excerpt and get your thoughts. The need for net, net uh, I'm sorry, the need for search neutrality is particularly pressing because so much market power lies in the hands of one company, Google. With 71% of the United States search market, Google's dominance of both search and search advertising gives it overwhelming control. One way that Google exploits this control is by imposing covert plan- penalties that can strike legitimate and useful websites, removing them entirely from its search results or placing them so far down the rankings that they will in all likelihood never be found. For three years, my company's vertical search and price comparison comparison site Foundum was effectively disappeared from the internet in this way. Um, Does Google have too much power? Do we need search neutrality? No, we don't. Welcome to America. That's it? Uh, yeah, I really think that it's total bullshit. Uh, it sounds like it's the uh, written by a lobbyist who's trying to represent uh, Microsoft and somebody else. Uh, you know, it's you know, it is not uh, an issue. Uh, if it was, um, 
you know, you can create issues like that for everything. The people who are dominant today don't don't necessarily dominate tomorrow as technology evolves. And no, I don't think that, that the center of uh, creative innovation sits in, in Mountain View, despite the fact that Google's done amazing things for the world. There are many other amazing people all over the world who are also innovative and stuff. And uh, I, I think that this is total bullshit. It's a great uh, positioning play and well-written, uh, but has no real meaning. And that uh, I just don't believe it. Got it. Final question, Jeff. As we were talking, uh, you've had video Skype on. And in the background, I saw your two sons working on their laptops, sort of doing their thing. And the question is this. First of all, it reminded me of the future of the news business because it used to be you were in the newsroom seeing the anchor and you had these people in the back reporting. Now I'm talking to you in Miami in a, in a condo. I'm seeing your kids in the back doing their thing. What, what, they're the future. Your kids are the future. So what I'm, I'm curious to know is when they hear you going off like this, what's going on for them? I mean, are they thinking – Oh man, Dad's long-winded. He's going off again. Or do they get it? Are they like, "Oh yeah, this is so obvious." I mean, we know this is all true. I mean, what's what's their reaction? Do you want to ask them? I would ask them, but did they? Um, of course, they didn't hear. They didn't hear your side of the conversation, Dylan. Uh, when you hear me talking about all this uh, and I'm like giving these really long-winded answers, what are you thinking? Uh, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Is it does it make sense to you? You're shaking your head yes. I guess that's. I guess Dylan, you want to shake your head yes? I'm going to take a really it does. I mean, like, come closer to the computer here, Dylan. Dylan, get over here. We're doing a podcast. Come over here. See, my, Dylan actually does a podcast too, but he does a. No, I don't. You and your brother does. You do a radio podcast. It's not a podcast. Yeah, of course it is. You were doing right. a recording. Anyway, so what do you? What's the answer? Just, just talk to the computer. Kid, kid, wait a minute. Can can you give him the uh, one of the? the Anyways. The, I think oh, here, yeah, I, I give, I give him the, the headphone so I can ask him the question. Yeah, Dylan, he does. Dylan, he's ready. So Dylan, my name's Eric. Right. My name's Eric. I've been interviewing your dad. I've been looking at you in the background, and so my question to your dad was, "Hey, you know, your kid's in the background. He's overhearing all this stuff you're talking about. What's going on for him? Is he thinking, oh man, this is all a oh. bunch of BS, or, or, or do you think it's interesting, or what's your reaction?" seems very interesting it's like it gives you perspective on like how our world is developed with the internet in the background and more going from the background into the spotlight and how the internet how the internet has helped communication change from like you go out with your friends friday night it's like you're talking all the week all through the weeks all vacation all year your friends from like all around the world and just puts all these different ways, put a new spin on communication with the internet being involved. How old are you, Dylan? I am 15 years old. 15 years old. Cool. Well, thank you for answering the question. You're welcome. Have a good day. All right. Well, so, you know, Jeff, it's funny. You know, um, uh, your, your, your son is 15 years old. He gets it. Uh, you know, he seems to be you know, fluent in the language of the internet. Uh, you know, he's he's. I think he's still got acne, well, don't, don't, and he's ready to well, you forget, know close a deal with forget, a venture capitalist. Don't forget, Dylan. Dylan and his brother Jacob have been on the internet since they're three years old, so they they have twelve years' experience being online. Well, listen, Jeff. Thanks a lot for taking time to do this. Um, it's been 
I think, oh, a really pleasure. interesting conversation. And I think it'll be very useful to, to the listeners of this podcast. Thank you for the chance to talk, too. And I, I do hope that your listeners who are interested in the digital CRM and, and really want to understand, the, you know, the, 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 I think the key for them to keep in mind is that as social communications evolves, the way we communicate socially has to adapt to that and that it's not in our control to figure out how we want to communicate with our prospects, but we have to understand who our prospects are and communicate with them with their language. So it's as if we, instead of just speaking in English, we have to be cognizant and, uh, and, and, and lingual in, uh, let's say, 10 different languages because each communication platform has its own requirements. In terms of, uh, in terms of where we're going with the real-time web and social media, who knows? It's very interesting times. Uh, and I do hope that some of your listeners uh, who might be interested in the 140 Character Conference uh, drop by 140conf.com and, and discover a local meetup happening near them so they could uh, share their two cents. Uh, I, I like to believe that everyone's voice not only matters but can be heard and that in the course of the time, time in front of us, we'll have an opportunity to bring people into the discussions. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks for having me. You got it. And we'll have a link to the uh, website in the show notes. Oh, great. Uh, well, thank you. Happy New Year. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.